0: This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi.
1: Jay, this week we're back with another round table, and we are... Doing something we've done before It's where we dissect a genre and try to figure out what makes this. These are hard. Unique. Yeah, these are hard and we don't always get it right, Jay.
2: That's okay. I mean, well, that's why we have us people on that are smarter than we are.
1: Right. So I'm basically I'm I'm not talking this episode. (laughs) I'm failing on this. And if you don't like something, we can blame it on them. And it's on their shoulders. The whole thing. Uh, we got a good roundtable for you. It's on Power Pop. We're going to be talking about the 90s, but we're also going to hit on you know what came before it so we can kind of set up what the uh, Power Pop was like in the 90s uh, with some of the artists that you probably do know and then maybe some of the more obscure artists from the decade. To help us do so on this episode, we have a roundtable of veterans and a newbie joining us. That newbie being Mr. Ryan Allen from the band Extra Arms or Ryan Allen and his Extra Arms, formerly of Thunderbirds are Now. Welcome to the show, Ryan.
3: Thank you, guys.
1: I'm super psyched to be here. I appreciate it. So this coincides. You have a new record coming out, correct?
3: That is correct. Yeah, we have a record coming out. Extra Arms has a record coming out in October, October 12th. Uh, It's called Headacre. And it is chock full of rocking power pop jams. So, if there's any band that we talk about from the '90s um, that you dig, you'll probably dig uh, Extra Arms in this record.
1: I like the synergy we got going here. This was this was a this was a good plan. Uh, how and it, did
3: it how did it come
0: together? Exactly. I
1: <laughs> uh, and I just I listened. I checked out the tunes. They were. Uh, previewed over at Stereo Gum, and uh, yeah, people can go there. And then I assume you have a website where people can go to and and listen to such things.
3: Yeah, extraarms.bandcamp.com is the best place to uh, to check out the music. And uh, yeah, Stereo Gum premiered two new songs from the record, um, and they're still up there, so you can check those out. They're on Bandcamp as well. And yeah, um, we're super excited for the record to come out. So um, hope you guys like it.
1: Excellent. Also joining us,
4: you know these people, Eric Grubbs. Welcome. <laughs> hey, guy, Back. What? Glad to be back. Always happy to be on with you guys. What are you
1: up to right now? What's what's going on? Podcast, writing, uh, uh, website, what kind of thing's going on?
4: Uh, still working on the the sequel to my first book, Post. Uh, this one's going to be about the emo revival, emo DJ nights, and all the emo uh, uh, bands that have reunited in the past ten years. So working on that, working on another book. I can't really say, but it's. Uh, I'm pretty stoked to be a part of it. Uh, and uh, let's put it this way: it's about a it's about a great pop punk band, and um, we're, I'm just me and a couple of other writers are help helping birth it. Uh, but we need to do some new interviews for it. So we got that. A um, lot of stuff for the Dallas Observer. Um, yeah, you're yeah, I, I mean I recently got to interview Johnny Marr, uh, Liz Fair, uh, just a lot a of, lot of really awesome fun interviews that uh, I'm excited to share with people. And as far as the podcast goes, uh, just kind of here and there whenever I yeah, find somebody that I haven't talked to already, I'm like, hey, let's sit down and talk for an hour. So <laughs> yeah, but I, I think like this year I've only done two episodes, so I'm really behind the ball. but uh, do you know who you are is still
0: around?
1: Okay. That's a slightly more relaxed schedule than we're used to, but uh I respect that you got other stuff going on. And uh that's good to hear.
4: I'm, I'm also in two bands, so
1: Well, okay. Just just calm down. Just calm down.
3: <laughs> Dude, I'm in, I'm in three bands, okay? So
2: I'm in four. <laughs>
3: I'm in
1: I'm you're in no bands, day. but I have four solo projects. <laughs> I don't know how that works.
2: <laughs> Are they, you're in no bands and you have four side projects?
1: Yeah, exactly. Right, is it a side project mm. or, or is it a solo? The, mm. Wrong episode. Oh, okay, wrong episode. sorry. I'm going to get yelled at again. Yep. And... <laughs> exactly. Joining us once again, you know him from the Rocket Fuel podcast, Mr. Jeff Takis. Welcome back, Jeff. Thanks, thanks. It's good to be here. What have you been up to lately? Anything to share?
5: Well, I just got some guys together to start my sixth band, so we're um, <laughs> going to be uh, on tour here next week. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Now, you know, things have been pretty quiet for me on the podcast front um, as of late, but uh, you never know. Something might be uh, something might be in the works.
1: All right, gentlemen, let's get into this. Let's talk about power pop. There are different and varying descriptions of what power pop is. So I would just like to go around this virtual room and sort of nail down just some basic descriptions of what are the elements of power pop when we talk about it. Different than, say, pop rock or jangle pop. Those are other terms that are used. We want to focus on power pop. So, Jeff, I'm going to start with you. What is one particular element that you think goes into a band when they're described as power pop?
5: Um, I think the first element that comes to my mind is um, the guitars. Um, it would be, I would say, guitar-driven music that is melodic yet powerful, hence power pop. And um, But you know, generally, so it's like when you hear power pop songs, at least when I do, they're songs that you always wonder why they're not on the radio more. But then somehow during the song, they usually let you know why they're not on the radio more because they're just not mainstream enough. But again, you'll always wonder, why isn't this on the radio more? More of this should be on commercial pop radio
1: these days. Right. Jay and I like to refer to it as the alternate universe problem. Like in an yes. alternate universe, this would be a massive hit. And yet here it's not.
4: Right. So. Very true.
1: Eric, what is a defining characteristic of power pop to you?
4: I would have to say that it's clearly influenced by the Beatles. I mean, before the Beatles, there was there was melodic music, of course. But as far as what the Beatles did, you know, they took stuff from Roy Orbison as well as Chuck Berry and and rhythm and blues. But the thing is, is that ever since then, anything that kind of resembles what the Beatles melodicism that to me is a big factor about what is power pop and what isn't so it
1: has to have like a a 60s pop sensibility
4: yeah uh, for lack of a better word or better word jangle
1: okay interesting cuz then you get into that thin line between power pop and jangle pop exactly okay <laughs>
2: he's going there right now oh he's
1: already getting close he's already that line is being <laughs> dabbed with the toe <laughs> ryan what is a characteristic you know you're you describe your band as being power pop so what element is in there that gives you that confidence to say this is power
3: pop yeah i mean i would i would agree with what everybody said you know that it sort of is it's a combination of melody and harmony and, you know, that, that guitar crunch that kind of makes it distinct. Um, the lyrics can be clever sometimes, sometimes maybe a little bit corny. Um, but there's always this sort of desire to get your point across in a very like tight, compact package. I feel yes. like two, three minute songs, you know, nods to British invasion. Uh, obviously, you know, the Beatles being the, the easiest comparison, but I feel like it's kind of revved up a little bit more, you know, it's, it's not quite so energetic that it's punk. Um, but there, cause there's more of a focus on, you know, songcraft than just pure energy. But, um, and, and I, and I promised my wife that I would not use this analogy, but my brain tends to work in in, in analogy. So, you know, to me, power pop is, it's kind of like a, it's like a good green grilled cheese sandwich where it's kind of got the the hard crunch on the outside and then it's sort of gooey in the middle. And, and if it's too cheesy, then it's, it's kind of ruined. Uh, but if it's that right amount of, of crunch and, and sort of soft gooeyness in the middle, cause I feel like power pop always has sort of a heart in there. you know, there's, there's a, whether it's melancholy or it's, you know, um, uh, a love song or whatever, there's always kind of like a softness to it that's surrounded by that hard shell. Um, But uh, yeah, that's how I would describe it to like somebody who's never heard it. It's also super into uh, eating food.
1: (laughs) That is, that's a good (laughs) analogy. I don't think your, your wife has any reason to quarrel with it because what you described there was also key conciseness. I don't think power pop songs can be seven minutes long. You can't go on an, an epic journey in a in a power pop song
3: yeah there's not a lot of power pop odysseys right out there. <laughs> um
4: one one exception to that i would say okay. is the last song on the first uh raspberries record i can remember it starts off really slow and then it like has this great like in the middle of it, it it's like seven minutes long and it but it closes the album i believe um that's one exception but i agree with everything that y'all are saying
1: well that's a yeah, that's a could, deep album they, track so
4: yeah.
3: They can they can get away with that in the
4: 70s. Right. Yeah. People also. don't
3: have the, pa- the patience for it anymore. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> Jay, how about you? Are there anything any any you know defining characteristics that you think are missing from what we've mentioned so far?
2: Well, if you take the the pop songwriting format and you make sure that you've got the melody, I think the thing that distinguishes it once once you have those elements is that it takes, to me, it takes the three core genres of rock and roll jazz, rock, um, blues, and um, country, but it never goes too far in any one of those three directions. Like a good power pop song, you, it won't be to the point of being country because then it gets into jangle pop and it won't be to the point where it's blues because then it gets into more rock and it won't be to the point where it's jazz because then it becomes kind of progressive. So it's Hmm. to me, it's always music that's like firmly in the middle of that, but very much, you know, about a tight, concise pop songwriting and melody.
1: Interesting. Yeah. And if it's too fast, it turns into punk. Yep. So, yeah, it's a very like thin line to toe
2: with all of that.
1: Now, here's so here's a question. Do there have to be harmonies?
2: Personally, I I see that as a hallmark when I hear that. It makes me usually start to uh, identify a song as power pop, at least to start with until I can get the rest of the feel for the song. But as soon as I hear harmonies, especially Beatles ask harmonies to Eric's point. Yeah. I mean, I I suppose there's some that don't, but to me, if it does, that's a definite check mark in the, in the box.
1: Okay. Well, we can get into that once we start talking about particular artists and, and whatnot. We had some comments over Patreon. I want to bring, up some of those comments because they do talk about some bands that we're going to get into so uh roger who just joined us he said i never realized i was such a power pop fan until i started listening to the podcast i never understood the term i most often heard it applied to cheap trick who i thought was just a classic rock band i still don't know if i understand what makes the genre hopefully we've helped define with a few characteristics there but so my favorite band is Everclear, a band that most people write off as second wave Nirvana ripoffs. However, a song like Santa Monica has a hook like nothing Cobain ever wrote. I don't know we could classify Everclear as Power Pop. I think they're more in the rock vein. Anybody want to disagree yeah. with that?
4: Um I would just say that there's a line of demarcation. There is the band before Santa Monica, and then there's the band after Santa Monica right uh sparkle and fade is one of the best records of the 90s in my opinion but um i mean it's it's very poppy but as far as like what is known as like classic kind of power pop i mean it it is a bit of a broad term but i've never considered it that way um i i once read this i believe it was a modern drummer referred to it as like john mellencamp meets punk and i was like hmm, okay but huh. You know, I'm I'm not disrespecting what this guy was saying. Uh, it's just kind of like, I, I haven't heard Everclear be referred to that, but they're they're definitely a great band. It's just, unfortunately, uh, after Santa Monica, it was kind of like, well, that's the style that you have to have hits with. Um, whereas, dun, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so much for the Afterglow phenomenal record actually starts off with pet sounds kind of harmonies um and that whole record is great but what was their undoing was just they have to stick to this one formula to be on the radio and well apparently playing in a band with art alexakis is not really a band that's all i have to say that's all i have to say
1: roger also brought up fountains of wayne which we've talked about on the show twice both as a album review and then also when uh, Joey po- Jody Potter, the guitar player, was on. Uh, he also brings up a couple other artists that he said he might put into this genre. He's not sure. Um, Loud Lucy. Anybody familiar with Loud Lucy? Chicago band, I believe. No, Where,
4: but I'm, sh- I'm sure Jim
2: Company is.
1: Yes, he is. I know they posted about them on Facebook.
4: I
2: remember the name. I don't know. I, I guess I remember maybe playing around to early me, 2000s or something.
1: Well, no, they, they were like mid-90s. And to me, they're a bit more like just pop rock uh there's not the harmonies it's not it's not as it's not as sunny you know 60s pop like the way we were describing it and then that dog i don't know that i would describe that dog as power pop specifically the retreat from the sun album you mentioned yeah yeah
4: i think of them I more mean, as like a we- weezer kind of band you know
1: well we'll get into that because weezer <laughs> comes up <laughs>
3: sorry i didn't For mean to record, cut you off right? I, uh... Oh, it's cool. I, I love that Dog. I love Retreat mm-hmm. from the Sun. I saw them play that record front to back uh, at Riot Fest last year, which is like almost 95% of the reason that I, I went to that thing. Um, I saw them as a teenager open up for Weezer. And uh, I think that band's amazing. And I think that that, that band is a, a great example of kind of using as a barometer of what kind of defines a band as power pop, or not, and I think some of it is connected to where they may have come from originally, you know, and I think that dog, you know, they were, I believe they're an L.A. band, but, you know, they kind of came up playing more in sort of a punk scene, you know, playing with Jawbreaker and things like that. So, you know, I think that, that sometimes power pop bands, or, or, you know, a lot of power pop records are made by just one person, you know, it's, it's sort of a solo act you know, your Tommy Keen's, your Matthew Sweets. Um, and, you know, and, and that is a little bit more of a uh, sort of, con- I w- I w- I'm not going to call it like concocted, but more of a crafted thing where it's not as organic as a as a band, just sort of friends forming and doing a thing, you know? So I, while I think that Dog and a lot of bands from that era have, you know, uh, similarities to Power Pop, I mean, there's a ton of harmonies, in that dog songs. There's also something that makes them, you know, a little bit more ne- unique to to an extent, you know, with the violins and, and, and things like that. So, you know, I think, I think when you're, when you're sort of analyzing these things in the back of my mind, I always sort of think of like, where did they come from? Who were they playing with? What was the intent, you know, behind what they were trying to do, you know? And uh, certainly there's going to be bands on that, that side of things where it's, they were just trying to get huge, you know that that would be ever clear for me, you know, like they were they got signed and they were on the radio, and then there's that dog who's more of an indie band that you know sort of fell into the d g c world and then you've got these power pop people sort of in the middle where it's like they never quite got there, but they were never quite punks either, you know
1: right, kind of a no man's land in between
2: and and there are bands that um have maybe have some power pop songs but aren't necessarily power pop bands. Right. And there's some bands that maybe have made power pop albums but aren't necessarily power pop bands.
1: Or they evolve into it. Like Yeah, or there's some bands that are that are
2: pure the whole time. Right. That's a great example. Or there's Johnny
1: Hooper brought up on our Patreon page
4: yeah um it's like y'all remember that ween record white pepper that was like intentionally very very melodic and it's like but you're not gonna call ween a, a power pop band you know but that song like even if you don't from uh white pepper gold
1: whitney beeler chimed in who happens to be a huge power pop fan he said melodies harmonies tidy songcraft, and i'd add hooks and plenty of power chords. This is a genre I've spent most of my time with. It's tough to design d- to define the genre. I tend to leave out jangle pop, which would be, in his uh, opinion, the bands like The Gin Blossoms, The Laws, and Marshall Crenshaw. He also mentioned bands like The Smithereens, Cheap Trick, Teenage Fan Club, put out lots of great power pop during the decade, but their greatness is scattered over multiple albums. So I want to get into this a little bit. Um, Cheap Trick I think that in terms of 70s power pop along with Big Star and the Raspberries that's sort of where this all starts I think in terms of like a mainstream consciousness am I right especially with or, or I guess you gotta go back to Badfinger too because that's like 1970
2: I was gonna say Badfinger because to me that's the bridge from the Beatles to those bands like they took the Paul McCartney thing and really pushed the boundaries of that kind of melodic approach into you know many songs and many albums, and then that to me that kind of bridged you into the seventies big star and cheap trick and that stuff.
5: I would add in the kinks as a band that helped build that bridge too,
2: yeah, yeah, especially from the the really like well crafted songwriting standpoint and right. the sort of raw energy
1: so do they are they do you describe them as power pop or as a an influence upon what would be power pop?
5: I would personally say more the latter, where yeah. they were an influence to the genre. But I don't know if I could I – w- I would consider them a rock band yeah. uh, okay. that influenced the power pop genre. It's an, really an interesting thing to think about you know, the concept of like, well, like what was the first power pop band? Like, I, it's like, I can't, I don't really feel comfortable answering that. Cause I don't, I don't think I can, I don't, I don't, I don't think it comes from the sixties. It probably comes from the seventies.
1: Right. In opinion. Yes.
3: Well, yeah, to I be fair, to you, oh. go ahead. Sorry. I was, was going to say, I think to the, you know, I mean, everything kind of starts with the Beatles, right? I mean, they're the first rock band, the first punk band, the first psychedelic band first boy band right. and you can make a list, right? Yeah. And, and, and sort of, you know, a lot of power pop to me, kind of where it went is sort of indebted to like the DNA of the Beatles up until, you know, like Rubber Soul era Beatles. And then they started going off on their own trip and there was, I think, a group of bands that sort of latched on to what those early Beatles records were doing. And they sort of took it in their own direction, and, and so you had bands like Badfinger. Obviously, you know Paul McCartney wrote some songs for Bad Badfinger early on, uh, mm-hmm. and and then that sort of goes into Big Star, who is one of my favorite bands of all time. You know, the Raspberries, like we mentioned, but then I feel like the '80s are almost like not to not to skip over Cheap Trick because they they almost deserve their own. You know, we can talk about them the entire podcast probably, but. <laughs> You know, uh, there's bands like the Knack and Tez and Band and the Rubenews and the Toms and 2020 and Shoes and Any Trouble and all these bands that were sort of like, you know, in the 80s that, that while they weren't overtly like crunchy and loud as, as it became in the 90s, I feel like those are the bands that sort of took hold of the genre and ran with it.
1: Yeah, and that was, from what I was reading, is considered sort of the second wave of power pop the first wave being the originators Badfinger, raspberries cheap trick big star and then when you get into the 80s you get the bands that you mentioned the knack the romantics are the ones that had big breakthrough singles it's where power pop can become intermingled with like a new wave in in the same way that like you know nick lowe gets thrown into there and elvis costello where they weren't quite sure. punk they weren't fast enough to be punk so then they were new wave but then there then you know new wave was a a label that was created by a record label in order to distinguish you know bands from punk so you get this like crossover of well what's new wave what's power pop what's punk that's a hard sort of i don't know you can nitpick song to song at that point which which one of those is which. I don't know that like Elvis Costello to me is not power pop. Uh I I just put him as a rock artist. Um I personally and we can debate this, I never thought of like the romantics or the knack as being power pop. Had you guys heard them described in that way before?
2: Oh yeah. Okay. Not cool. me. I had, not yeah.
4: Me. Yeah. It was even it was more it was more new wave, you know. It was it was just kind of like really friendly uh new wave,
2: you know. I would throw <laughs> Rick Springfield in there too. Oh yeah. That's, I've heard him described his power pop. Really? Huh. Yep.
3: That's yeah, a- I mean I've I've heard that too, and I think that it I think that it I think it works, you know. I think that he he's a he's a phenomenal guitar player. I don't know if you've ever seen him play guitar. There's a pretty good documentary that came out about him a few years ago it's worth watching but um you know the other thing that i think is kind of interesting too is you know after this first wave whatever that might be you know there's also like so you're talking about the new wave bands right and then there's this other sort of underground thing happening that might be a little bit more indebted to like rem and stuff like that where you've got the dbs you've got you know the mice you've got like '80s Red Cross, XTC, maybe Lex Active, like bands who were into the Birds and Black Flag and Who and REM and all these bands right. that were sort of dis- disparate influences doing doing something kind of beneath that layer where the Knack and uh, you know uh, Elvis Costello were maybe you know being played on the radio. There's all these bands kind of right underneath that, and maybe those are some bands that you know people might not be as familiar with. I've, maybe XTC aside, but we're sort of doing what, again, I think, you know, as we're starting to turn into the nineties, a lot of these nineties bands that we'll end up talking about are, are as influenced by the Beatles as they are influenced by, you know, Red Cross or, you know, REM.
4: Right. Uh, One name I got to just going off of what Ryan's saying is that somebody that actually was, kind of primed to be a big star in the 80s but it didn't for lack of a better phrase sorry uh but uh, a, a big artist uh, was tommy keen uh he had put out one uh, solo record uh, on an independent label and then he got signed by geffen and they did two records and neither of them really went anywhere but those records still sound great but in it was really in the 90s that he became the the person that was just like he wasn't gonna quit and so he put out a number of great solo records and he toured with Paul Westerberg. He even played on the Goo Goo Dolls uh, Broadway. He plays lead guitar on it. So he was just one of those guys that was never going to stop what he was going to do. Um, and, uh, you know, sadly, he passed away last year. And, um, I, and also, unfortunately, sorry, we're, we're going to talk about more uplifting things. But as of right now, um, the records that he cut in the 90s uh, are not on streaming services, but he told me last year that he had the masters to him and he hoped to put them up online soon. So I hope uh, I hope his family uh, will follow through and and do that uh, because yeah. to- Tommy Keene was a pretty consistently great songwriter and performer.
3: Yeah, Tommy Keene rules, and Strange Alliance's first record is eight songs of just some of the best pop songs you'll ever hear. Um, I mean, a lot of his records are f- fantastic, but um, yeah, it's it's really sad that he's gone.
1: Yeah. I want to back up a little bit. One of the things that or one of the bands that Whitney brought up in his comments that I need to revisit because I'm I'm not sure I agree with this. The Smithereens. Are the Smithereens a power pop band?
0: Or I
2: think they write they a definitely... power pop song here and there. Are there? yeah, I, I think they've written some power pop songs, but I wouldn't call them a power pop band okay their their albums are pretty I don't know to me they are fairly diverse they're all grounded in some traditional sense of classic rock and power pop is one that they've explored but I think I think of their albums as being more diverse than just being a power pop band
4: yeah
1: okay. so he had on he gave us a nice long list if you go to pay our patreon page. <laughs> You can read the comments to this episode. Uh, He gave us both a 90s list and a 2000s list, which are both really long. Um, He mentions Weezer in his 90s list. And I'm like, okay, Weezer's already gotten credit for starting Emo. (laughs)
4: <laughs> Which is with, wrong with,
1: with Pinkerton. Is,
4: that is that is wrong. That is totally wrong. That is, right. is retroactively rewriting re, you know, revisionist history. Uh, anyway.
1: Eric, how do you really feel about that?
4: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Rant over. Move on.
1: So here's the thing. When Weezer's Blue album came out, was anybody going, wow, this is an awesome return of Power Pop? no. <laughs> no.
4: No, it it was more of like, wow, here is a band that is really embracing their nerdy culture and making some pretty great rock music um, that's also very melodic, but I never thought of them as power pop.
2: But maybe that's the thing with power pop, because as we go through a lot of these bands, like maybe at the time, these bands aren't considered that, but it's in hindsight that we classify them that way. So like, I know mm-hmm. when the Knack came out, New Wave was the term to market them, so they were- you know, are thought of as a new wave band. But I think when you look back and really analyze it, I think you make the case that they're really a power pop band. It's just that term wasn't, it's like, it's never been a term in popular culture to market a band, a current band. You know what I mean? It's not like the term grunge or, you know, new metal or these terms that are come out when the bands are hot and it's used as a marketing tool. It's kind of like in hindsight, you realize like, Oh shit, they're a power pop band. (laughs) i would yes. i would
3: agree i would agree with you jay i when when the blue album came out i you know when i was delivering newspapers on my on my sweet gt bike uh in eighth grade uh listening to that record on my walkman to, to me it was just I, I mean it it opened up the skies for me i was just like finally a band made for me you know this kind of awkward dorky kid who was like looking for something that spoke to him, you know, and uh, you know, it really connected with me. And I and I love those first two records. Um, they they I feel like shaped me. Uh, I'm, I'm I would say I'm a bigger uh, fan of Pinkerton than I am the Blue album, all said and done. But I think Jay made a really great point. Is kind of you know, as I matured and learned about more music, which you know in 1990, what was that four? When that record yeah. came out, yeah, yes, um, I didn't know, you know, who Big Star was. You know, I didn't know who. I mean, I heard The Cars, you know, but like, I had no idea about half of these bands that I today would tell you are some of my favorite bands. You know, so in retrospect, kind of hearing all of that music and like letting it sort of, you know, uh, form this definition of what something might be at the time, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that. But, you know, in 2018, as a 38-year-old man who's heard a ton of music in his life, I would say Weezer is a, maybe the most uh, popular power-pop band ever, you know, uh, in a way. I mean, you could could make that argument if you wanted Hmm.
0: to. Yeah.
2: And they were the band that really. Uh, to I know I'll jump ahead to one of Tim's topics, but uh, what made the '90s power pop unique is that maybe they were the first one to really put that heavy guitar, you know, to power pop. Another band I was thinking of, Tim, was Luster. You know, one of our early reviews where it's these super well crafted pop songs, but the guitars are like metal guitars. You know, I mean, in yeah. terms of the amount of distortion and how heavy they are. And uh, I think that's what maybe what Weezer introduced was, you know, doing um, power pop in a, you know, more of a contemporary way with heavier, chunkier guitars.
1: Well, I feel like Red Cross got there a little bit with with um, what's the earlier album, not Show World. What's the album that came up before that, that we
2: reviewed? Uh, yeah, but that's Phase even, Shifter. Yeah, yeah you know, that's, I feel like it's 97.
1: No, Face Shifter's earlier.
2: Yeah, that was Show 97. I think
1: yeah, yeah Face shifter is the one that has a heavier guitar sound speaking of heavier guitar sound so here's a, a question this is a, a band that i, f- I feel like has just been completely lost to to the sands of time so to speak urge overkill's saturation
3: oh man what a re- what a great record that record killed
1: and i see th- go ahead i i feel like a lot of that record maybe not the whole record but a lot of that record has the vibe of a power pop. Yeah. Definitely I mean, they cheap were, they were definitely
3: cheap, cheap trick, I would say yeah. for sure. Being, really? from, being from Chicago, you know, I mean, certainly that was in the water there, but uh, yeah, I would agree that there's some m- massive riffs on that record. Um, you know, they, I think the thing that's a little bit different about them is, is sometimes power pop can be defined by the sweet, sweetness of the vocals. And sort of, you know, um, I wouldn't call them or that band uh, a band that sort of focused on, you know, pitch perfect harmonies and stuff like that. I think they were coming at it from more of a rock and roll bar band kind of uh, perspective, but there's some really great songs on that record. Yeah. Bottle I, feel of like, fur. I mean,
1: yeah, come on. And I feel like that's a case where it's a, it's a it's a, an album. It's not their career as being a power pop band. It's just this one album where they decided to embrace that sort of sound and do big hooks and write concise songs. And, you know, we we reviewed one of their earlier albums. It's a very weird record. I mean, there's, you know, one or two songs that have decent hooks, but there's also a lot of, like, weird experimenting uh, with – uh. Sounds and and stuff that would not Normally be on a power pop record So I feel like that one is where they kind of like Let it all go and just Make a big rock record for What I guess that was their second
3: Major label Album at that point Um, I mean people people view Saturation as blasphemous who are Right of those early records and I can totally understand that Um, You know But that's the record that I heard them on You know and and I mean, I saw them in, in a, like a metal club when I was 15. I had our friend's mom drove us to the show and I felt like I was i was like, oh, they, like they could probably film a Guns N' Roses video at this place, you know, and I'm probably going to get beat up. <laughs> and I watched them from the very back of the room because I was terrified of what might happen to me. Um, but they, they were awesome live band. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought them up because that record's awesome.
2: Jay,
1: you mentioned when we were talking about defining characteristics that one of the things that matters is not dipping too far into any particular genre, like sort of maintaining a distance from everything, and that's what makes Power Pop unique. So a band that I want to mention from the 90s that I feel like at times can cross over into maybe a different genre is Jellyfish. Um mm-hmm. they can get kind of progressive yeah. in their in their sounds um I mean obviously they've got some super hooky you know singles and album tracks, but um they're a band based on the musicianship of the multiple members who are all you know super talented that they can come up some some really complex stuff musically so in a band like Jellyfish, which is considered a, you know, power pop icon, when they get into the album tracks, can they start to get a little bit, I guess, experimental or, you know, sort of lean towards one of those genres, even if it's not, you know, what defines the sound for the whole record?
2: Well, to me, they're, they're doing what those early bands did, you know, like what the Beatles were. They were a lot of different things but they had this sensibility at the heart of everything they were doing. So they could be very experimental or progressive or weird, but it all held together. So right. I don't know. I think belly button is, is, is pretty consistent in terms of being a power pop record, but spilt milk is not to me. It's too progressive. Um, uh, just in my opinion, but they definitely written some great power pop songs.
1: Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just, you, this is where that tricky part comes in where, you know, a band can maybe write some power pop songs. But, you know, if you were to write an album that has like one song <laughs> from each genre, uh, which maybe ween does occasionally, you know, then it then it'd be a little harder to nail them down and and um, what? define the band.
2: Well, you know what's weird though is that before I prepared for this episode, I probably would have said just straight up, "Yeah, jellyfish is a power popping. band. And I would have said the same thing about uh, the greys. But now that I've analyzed it and thought about it, they're to me they're not pure in that sense. They're a little bit more diverse. Impure.
3: <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like jellyfish is in sort of a class of their own. You know, I mean. I don't know if uh, queen covering disney music is a, is a genre but if it, if it was then that would be <laughs> jellyfish to me. But what's interesting about them, I mean, uh, there's a lot of power pop stuff that I hear and it might be more underground stuff, but a, a lot of stuff that's kind of in my orbit um is th- that calls itself power pop and identifies with that, you know, is co- very influenced by jellyfish, you know, the layered harmonies Maybe not so much the 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 sort of progressive side of it, but definitely that sort of sweetness to the vocals. Even though, um, and his name escapes me right now, Eric something maybe. But uh, the guy who sings in Jellyfish can can really wail. But um,
2: uh, Andy Sturmer, you know, you know
3: A- Andy Sturmer. That's it. Sorry. Um, and and you know, I, I I feel like that that kind of stacked harmony kind of approach. You know that they certainly pulled from the Beach Boys and, and, and Queen. Um, I hear it a lot, you know, and I feel like that's an interesting thing to think about too, is kind of like what did some of these bands end up influencing later, you know, but I don't know. Phil milk is a killer record.
0: So
1: it seems like there's the nineties are considered the third wave of power pop in terms of, making a, a, an impact. And it seems like there's like a, a split. You have the successful breakthroughs of say Matthew sweet, who was on the radio, basically the entire decade, starting with girlfriend. And then mm-hmm. all, you know, all, all the records were MTV and, and radio friendly, uh, in the nineties. And then, um, you know, we, Debated now whether Weezer was or not at the time. You know, you also had a band like um, the Posies in 93 with Frosting on the Beater. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe not as big in terms of, you know, success with Matthew Sweet, but did manage to get some, you know, video airplay on MTV and, and got some airplay on college radio and whatnot. And, you know, we're on a major label. Fountains of Wayne, that was a band, although their biggest single managed to yeah. chart in the i guess 2000s um
4: and they won the best new artist award at the grammys with their third record
1: <laughs> there you go do y'all,
4: do y'all know that
1: no i don't i didn't i don't I've, yeah. honestly i've never yeah. watched the
4: grammys <laughs> yeah it, i i think um uh, the, uh chris uh said something that's like um oh, it's it's nice we're winning the best new artist on our third record
5: <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think that's, that's
4: how it goes. That's so like, Grammys. But yeah, the first Fountains of Wayne record, very power pop. Um, but but by the time that they got to Utopia Parkway, they were more of like a a new wave power pop band, you know, all that. So here's but, I mean, their their music is still just consistently great. So,
1: and then it seemed like there was also what was getting my point was there was a second level of power pop, which seemed a bit more indebted. To, I guess you'd say the original vision of of, or sounds of the Beatles, and that was a bit more underground where you get Jellyfish and then you get into bands like Velvet Crush, which Mm -hmm. were doing you know a power pop sound.
2: Well, they were, uh, I had this in my notes too. I mean, they were there was a, a subset that was like almost retro, like callbacks aesthetically to the 60s and 70s. So, I mean, you could say even Matthew Sweet was that. Right. I mean, like the way they dressed and sort of the the way the album covers looked and um, Superdrag, the same thing like those the early Superdrag stuff was sort of in that same kind of retro power pop vein as the Velvet Crush records were, too.
3: Yeah, I would throw I would throw Sloan's name out there uh, Mm -hmm. as a band who sort of um, did a lot of variations on power pop some some of them were more Beatles. esque um you know their their records that came out in the early 90s you know after their first record which was super kind of like creation records uh my bloody valentine Swerve sort of, swerve sort of drivery kind of evolved into this sort of beatly like um you know kinksy kind of thing and, and sort of carry that through so that record's twice removed and, to, and then into one chord to another which you know has some kind, of, you know, sounds. From, uh, it's all over the place. There's there's more Beatles. There's you know there's uh, credence. There's um, you know uh, there's just tons. I mean, Buzzcocksy type stuff. But um, you know, Navy Blues is a record that they put out that is, is, I think, really hits that seventies-ish kind of influence. Really, you know, hits the nail on the head there. And they're they're just a a phenomenal band four, four guys who write songs they're still going today you know um, I'm lucky to call a couple of those guys friends and uh, you know they're one of my favorite bands of all time and I think that um, they're super underrated and if you know people are listening to this that are not familiar with them they're a band that I would definitely recommend checking out
4: Sloan's consistently great from the beginning and um, can can give you all a little heads up because I recently interviewed Jay Ferguson. Um, the next big reissue that they're going to do is one for Navy Blues with like all yeah. sorts of demos and stuff that m- most people have not heard. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Sloan, I mean, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I wanted to talk about, you know, was Power Pop a uniquely American phenomenon? Well, you have Sloan and then you right. have Teenage Fan. You have Sloan from Canada, then you have Teenage Fan Club from uh, Scotland.
1: Well, and and Badfinger is from Wales. Right. So, But it does seem like the dominant country in terms of putting out power pop bands and albums and singles and songs does seem to be the United States. Yeah. And I wonder if that is sort of a reaction to, in the UK... Jay and I have discussed this before. It seems like people are able to bounce around in terms of what they appreciate musically. And, you know, someone might listen to ABBA and then they also might listen to Iron Maiden and it's not a big deal. Like it's just all sort of music over there where people get, or at least up until the nineties, maybe into the two thousands, people got very genre uh, specific with like, you listen to metal and you're just listening to metal. And that was pretty much it. And it seemed like maybe because music that was guitar-driven but heavily melodic was not appreciated in terms of mainstream, it became like this sort of anti-establishment music. Is that a weird... Maybe that's a weird way to look at it. But like Power Pop is almost a way of being like, you know, this is is what rock and roll was created on and you're not paying attention to it, but we're going to make this you know, Beatles ask, you know, rock music that, you know, in the 1960s was good enough, but now we can't, you know, one one or two people will sneak on the radio
4: every once in a while. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like this idea of like, what would happen if you actually took time to work on your singing voice and say harmonize with other members of the band? Because right. what's, you know what's often kind of derided about grunge is like, well, those guys can't sing. To which I'm like, have you ever really listened to how Eddie Vedder sings? You know, it's pretty on point. But the point is, is like, it 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 to people that didn't like grunge, it's like, oh, these are people that just don't care about singing. And so it's kind of like, well, you have the Posies that uh, John hour and Ken Stringfellow can harmonize with each other like the Hollies did, um, and uh, you know, it's it's just kind of like it made it stand out because it was unabashedly powerful, but also very easy on the ears. Right. You know?
1: So let's get into, you know, our favorites, but maybe not necessarily our favorite. but albums that you think define the decade of the nineties in terms of power pop. Um, ones that you if someone was going to say well what does 90s power pop sound like what would be a record that you would hand them um and say this is it this is this is what the 90s power pop sound was sounded like in comparison to the 80s or the 70s and taking into account what we've sort of maybe figured out is that maybe the guitars were a little heavier in the 90s definitely Eric, I'll start with you. What would be, if you're going to hand somebody to re- one of the records from the 90s, what would be the uh, the one you would give them?
4: The first one off the top of my head would be Frosting on the Beater by The Posies, closely followed by Bandwagon-esque by a Teenage Fan Club.
1: Okay, when we haven't talked about Teenage Fan Club, is that a band that is a power pop band or do they make power pop records and some of their stuff is not power pop?
4: Um, I would say it, it's the latter. I mean, because like they have some stuff that's a little bit more country here and there, but they're often associated as a power pop band. You know,
3: right? I think I think they were, I think they were doing basically their take on, you know, American music. You know, with with I think there's a Dinosaur Jr. influence. There's a Neil Neil Young influence, who's obviously not American, but you know, makes sort of Americana-ish type sounding music and then sort of mix that together with the Beatles. And, you know, clearly Big Star is a huge influence on that band. Um, you know, I feel like Bandwagon-esque is, to me, is a perfect record. Melodically, you know, I think that there's nothing that gets so fast that it gets into like a blurry kind of punk territory. Um, but they don't, they they haven't like yet begun on their path to being a little bit more laid back which some of their later records started to to get into that into that zone but um you know between bandwagon ask and grand prix and 13 those three records i feel like you know i mean you can't find three better 90s power pop records than those records
1: Ryan, so is are, is that your pick then? If you're going to be picking a record to hand to somebody or is it another one?
3: Well, it was on my list for sure. Um, and I don't know if this record would completely define the genre, but I, I will say that it's my favorite hard pop record from the 90s and one of my favorite records of all time. And it's Head Trip in Every Key by Super Drag. I think John Davis is one of the most talented songwriters um, you know from my generation, I guess, uh, you know, from the nineties on, I mean, he's, um, super prolific, um, you know, wears his influence on his sleeve, but, but also manages to kind of, you know, distill them down into his own thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, head trip and every key is just a, it's a, it's a journey of a record to me, you know, um, it starts with a very sort of like straightforward, just very melodic kind of, you know, four on the floor type of song, uh, and then kind of picks up from there, but then goes into different directions with, you know, there's, there's kind of heavier rock stuff on it. Um, like do the vampire, for example, which, you know, should have been a hit back then and, and wasn't. Um, but then there's songs kind of later in the record that are a little bit more melancholy and sort of experimental, but every song is, um, super well-written and it's just, it's a great record. It, it I, I still listen to it, you know, monthly probably. And I still get lost in it. So, so that'd be my pick.
1: Jeff, what about you? You're picking a record for somebody. What are you going to hand to them?
5: So I loved all of the records that were said to answer this question, but if I had to pick one record to give to somebody that boils down 1990s, power pop into one record take it or leave it love it or not is matthew sweet's 100% fun. Yes. Like I think I I mean like again like I love I love the posies, I love superdrag, both great, you know, bands. I just think when I think personally of 90s power pop, I think of Matthew Sweet and I think of that record. And I think if you were trying to introduce somebody to that decade of the genre, you could give that to them as the litmus test to see if they want to keep digging haha, or not. um, And then, you know, go from there.
1: The crazy part about Matthew Sweet, I went down a little Matthew Sweet hole (laughs) this week preparing, is that when you listen to some of the songs, you know, you, you're used to big harmonies when it comes to power pop stuff, but there are some songs where he kind of strips it back on the vocal department and maybe he just doubles himself and that's about it. But they're not like overly harmonized on like he and especially he did that on the in reverse record. There's there's some songs where they teeter on the edge of not being power pop, which is, I you know, if you're if you're making that a defining characteristic of having the harmonies, um, he's often doing that, you know, harmonizing with himself on on the hits. Those are the ones that people know. And actually, if you listen to uh, "Girlfriend," it's almost just a single vocal throughout a lot of that song. And then there's like bits and pieces where he throws in a brief double. Um, there's some like backing vocal things that are they're not word based. They're just like that uh, those "ahs" during the chorus, for example. But I guess that gets into like Beach Boys territory, which we didn't really kind of touch on. But I feel like paired with the Beatles, the Beach Boys. And their harmonies are also kind of key.
2: Yeah, to me, the Beach Boys is, when you say pop, to me, that's the definition in this context of the pop part. There's right. None of the power's there, but it defines what the pop aesthetic is. Can
4: I just throw out one question for you guys along those lines? Yeah. What are y'all's opinion about Sugar? Are they a power pop band?
3: So they're they're on my list as well um okay. copper blue is is uh is in my my list of four that i uh was considering to answer this question with and uh yeah i i absolutely uh think that they are a power pop band um maybe not in the sort of traditional way that you would think of it um they're definitely uh heavy on the guitars uh to a point where you know it might be pushing uh things into, into the red zone a bit um but you know, I mean, you can't deny the catchiness of those songs and, and on that record and, and file under easing listening as well, I think has a lot of great material on it. But um, yeah, man, I, I feel like, you know, if, if you define who's as a punk band, you know, I feel like um, sugar with Bob mold sort of reinventing himself as this, like, you know, very, um, you know, melodically inclined songwriter. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, if you listen to a song like If I Can't Change Your Mind, No One Will, that I mean, you know, and that's one of the sort of more dialed back songs. Right. Like that is a perfectly, you know, catchy, melodic, um, you know, energetic. And to me, po- still powerful song, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think of a song like G Angel. Like that's a yeah. super poppy, catchy Song off of a file under, and uh, yeah, I hadn't considered them, but that sometimes I feel like his guitar is so up front that it almost pushes it out of the power pop range. But especially on Copper Blue, um, there's just so loud.
3: Well, I mean, yeah. he was super influenced by My Bloody Valentine, and kind of at the right. same time, you know, and interestingly. Yeah you know, to bring it back to Superdrag for a second, like, um, my favorite album of all time is actually In the Valley of Dying Stars by Superdrag. And that, to me, is, is a kind of extension of what Sugar was doing at times with some of the sort of bendy guitar stuff that, you know, obviously Kevin Shields was doing and then Bob sort of took and sort of put into a more pop context and then John Davis kind of took and kind of, up the ante
2: uh as well um that's so funny you said that i i've always thought that too and I, I thought i was the only one that thought that in fact um there's a band that uh tim and i are big fans of called pretty mighty mighty who the singer sounds like bob mold but the music sounds like my bloody valentine so to me in the valley of dying stars very much sounds like you know the poppiest versions of, of that band which you know you're yeah. familiar with but yeah
3: i mean that that first foo fighters record would not exist without those sugar records. And you could you could make an argument that there's some power pop on that.
1: Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Big Me? Hmm.
2: <laughs> Forgot about that one.
4: Yeah. I, I was just going to throw out a couple of other names because I'm always afraid of like people going after us in the comments section. What are y'all's <laughs> opinions about the Lemonheads and material <laughs> issue? Well, that came up... Uh, okay. That came up from... Who brought,
1: the, who brought up? Ian Wobble brought up the Lemonheads. He said, especially, it's a shame about Ray. Yeah. He said it, it might be argued that it's an alternative rock album. I feel like, especially on the songs where he is harmonizing with Juliana Hatfield, like you get into mm-hmm. real power pop territory.
4: Sure.
3: Yeah, they're on my list, for sure.
1: Now, I don't yeah, know about much. the follow-up because it's not harmony driven the way that the that it's shame about ray is so like into your arms is a great pop rock song i don't know it's a power pop song
3: yeah well i think that this kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier it's kind of connected to sometimes where a band came from and certainly you know the Lemonheads. if you've listened to their early records you would not uh called those power pop records you know they're they're some scrappy and, and right. rock and sort of like descendants sort of uh influenced or something like that you know and as evan started to kind of take over songwriting duties you know and and it kind of evolved as a as a singer and a songwriter they they became more melodic over time you know um i i actually think that um that uh car button cloth is i mean if it's not power pop fine but you know uh, songs are really great and they're really catchy and they've got loud guitars on them and harmonies so I don't know if it looks like power pop and sounds like power pop it might be power pop so <laughs> I, I think you, you've you got some power pop records in your in your catalog
1: yeah Jay do you have one?
2: Uh, well I had four and two of them got taken already so I feel pretty good about sorry. that sorry no it's all good uh, the, so, I'll go with Jellyfish Belly Button um, because I'm thinking of like if we're going to make a, a time capsule here and we put in Super Drag and we put in the posies, I think Jellyfish gives you that super pristine version of mm-hmm. uh, Power Pop. Um, high level musicianship, you know, incredibly powerful harmonies. Um, you get some keyboard and synth in there, so you can kind of get that flavor you know, it's, it's got some variety from an album standpoint. Right. So I'll go with that. The other one I had that nobody else mentioned was red cross phase shifter. Um, Just because that gets you the, you know, that band um, was a power pop band in the eighties. And this sounds like third eye, which is a straight up power pop record more on the pop side, but it brings in this gnarly loud guitar and kind of, you know, grunge punk influenced, looseness to it where you definitely get the feeling of the 90s so you get that you know at the heart it's it's power pop and it's pure sense and then you've got this you know 90s aesthetic on top of it that just is heavy as hell so those are those are the two i had
1: all right well you guys have taken them all thanks <laughs> and we've reached the hour mark so this is a good place for us to Put a bow and let the conversation continue in our comments section, as Eric mentioned. Uh, I think we did a good job of sort of finding the the key elements of what makes PowerPop and then also what made PowerPop a little bit different in the 90s. So I think from that standpoint, we did a good job. I need to thank folks over at our Patreon page, who I didn't mention. I, that includes uh, Keith Badge and Jim Lazowski, who weighed in with comments, and um, all the folks over at Facebook as well. Everybody who has joined us now, thank you for uh, Ryan and Eric and Jeff. Thanks guys for coming on and spending your Sunday night with me and Jay talking about Power Pop. This this is pretty nerdy. I'm not gonna lie, what we just did. <laughs> this is this is the thing, the kind of thing that my wife is like you're such a nerd. And I'm like, I'm not a nerd. Lots of people like nineties music. Like, no, when you go down a rabbit hole of talking about the defining characteristics of power pop on, uh, on a Sunday evening.
2: The one thing we didn't talk about, the one thing we didn't talk about that, um, that you and I brought up when we reviewed some of these bands is the fact that these are bands, you know, really dedicated to pop, but most of them were not popular. Right. But there's an mm-hmm. irony in that in the, that. I mean oh, other than yes. a, a couple like, you know, Weezer that, you know, we're still arguing whether or not they're really power pop, but the vast majority of them were explicitly never popular, which is it, <laughs> it, it's like in a, in a
4: weird in a weird way, you know, alt country was more traditional country than what was considered country to a mass audience in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cuz like uh, you know, if, I mean, well, it was it was kind of the unfortunate thing that happened with Big Star in the 70s. If they were around in the 60s, they would have been huge. <laughs> right. But, uh, um, you know, those those three records have held up really well. I'm still the biggest fan of that first record because Chris Bell's on it. Um, and then by the time that you get to third sister lovers or sisters lovers, and it's like. Is this a power pop record? Well, you have "Thank You, Friends" and "Jesus Christ," but then you have a song like "Holocaust."
3: Yeah, and "Kangaroo." Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
4: yeah.
3: So, well, I think the thing—the thing that's uh, interesting, you know, kind of based on what you guys said earlier—is I think not to be offensive to anyone, but you know, power pop has always been kind of like music by nerds for nerds. So this was appropriately nerdy, I think. <laughs> and, and, and the- in the best possible way. And I'm glad to be a power pop nerd. So that's, that's number one. It, it's, it's music for underdogs. You know, the thing that's really funny to me about it at the same time, is like there've been songs that have been massively popular that are power pop songs. You know, I mean, Skater Boy by Ava Levine is a power pop song since mm. you've been gone by Kelly Clarkson yep. is a power pop song. I mean, so, you know, in in a weird way, even though it never has kind of cracked through and, and there's never kind of, you know, with a few exceptions aside, then, um, you know, kind of regarded by the mainstream as, a, as even a genre, you know, yeah. the influence of, of these people making it in the seventies, sixties and seventies and eighties and nineties, you know, it still kind of is there um, on a mass level. And uh, it's, it's kind of, kind of cool to hear a little bit of a palm muted guitar and some harmonies um make its way up the charts every once in a while you know and i don't think that would happen without you know some of the bands that we talked about today
4: yeah lest we forget that the rubenews uh, uh, successfully sued avril lavine because of her i want to be your girlfriend sounded a lot like i want to be your boyfriend
3: very true good one <laughs>
1: Let's, since we're talking about Avril Levine, let's do some bonus content. We'll talk about the 2000s and today uh, for a little bit over in our Patreon bonus content section. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash dig me out for just a buck a month. And you can also leave us positive feedback over at iTunes for Ryan, Eric, and Jeff. I'm Tim. And my co-host Jay. That was awkward the way I said that. That was that didn't come out the way I wanted it to. Whatever, we'll leave it in. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com Red